Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. It is good to see you all again. Brett, who is that next to you? <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot. Wow, that was so wrong of me just to put you on the spot like that. Whatever it is, I hope things are going well. Hope things are going well. Uh, shalom, everybody. Good to see all of your faces. This is fun. Um, actually, we just uh, I just finished right now. You know, I try not to ever schedule things on the day of the fellowship because I really want to be able to immerse myself in, uh, in the fellowship and in the learning. And the, but uh, today, you know, it was supposed to be the day that Jeremy was leading. And one thing led to, anyways, it was crazy. Hashem's in charge. But I just uh, said goodbye to a group that came out to the farm um, called, uh, what was it called? You know, our friend Steve Warp, you know, he started Blessed by Israel. So he's, it's this group of people that are coming to Israel to mourn alongside the Jewish people on the 9th of Av. Um, and, you know, they, they get a lot of flack. I know they do. People, a lot of Jews are skeptical and cynical, and you can understand it. You know, and they think, like, why are you imitating Jews? And what do you want to do? And you want to convert us? And, and like, they're paranoid about it. And then to a certain degree, I can really understand where they're coming from. Because when I originally heard about it, I had a little bit of a momentary reaction the same way as well, but I haven't gotten to know them. And really, the longer I'm living out here in Judea and having moments, like divine gift moments, where I feel like the energy of redemption that I experienced, a little moment of that, it makes sense. It makes sense what these holy people are doing. They're coming here and they're mourning the destruction of the temple because they are paying for it just as much as we are. All of humanity is paying the price for the brokenness and the grief and the sadness for the destruction of the temple. It's not a, a Jewish temple. It's a temple, my house is a house of prayer for all people and for all nations. And you know, whereas a lot of the, um, my Arab neighbors, a lot of them are praying for my death and my destruction. I'm praying for the building of the temple so that their eyes open up to the fact that we're brothers and we can actually love each other. And we're, we all of humanity will realize that we're, we are all brothers and sisters. And I think we'll all just let out one massive big cry and say, how could we have done this to ourselves? How could we have hated each other so much over nothingness, over silliness and stupidity? And so uh, I understand where they're coming from. And it was really special for me to be able to bless them and to thank them for what they're doing. Because there's no question that these people that are coming here and dedicating so much time and effort and energy mourning for the destruction of the temple on the 9th of Av, which is such an aberrant, unique thing to do, that they pay a price, you know, socially, at least socially with their families and their friends, a price that I'm sure many of you here, I'm just looking at your faces. I know so many of your stories and so many bits of so many of your journeys. And I know what you've gone through and that they've gone through and just being associated with all of you. Mike Isley, I see you there. Good to see you, Mike. Anyways, I just know what you've all been through, you know, and so it just is such an honor to call you my friends and, my, and really my teachers. Anyways, um, I really enjoyed the last fellowship. I want to tell you that. Uh, I really wasn't sure that it was going to come together for me. Often, I'm not sure the fellowship's going to come together at all, but uh, what we talked about has really been strengthening me uh, all week in a real way. So for me, it's a sign that that's a good fellowship if it affects my heart. 
and it affects me. So for me, that's a fellowship that's successful. I don't know if you feel that sometimes during the week that you tap into the fellowship that we just had before. But I think, um, I think it may have been one of my favorite fellowships ever. Uh, and it really, more than anything, it was because of the fellowship connection we had at the end. I know some of you had to log off and couldn't be on, but I know we had 120, I don't know, 120, 130 screens. And I know a lot of these screens are not just individuals and their families. And some of them are even communities that are coming together to watch together, which is a really great thing. And, and the fellowship connected, the questions were great and that you were able to answer each other's questions. I remember someone asked me a question. I answered the best I could. And then someone raised their hand and said, could I try to answer it? I said, please. And their answer I thought was actually better than my answer. And so that was cool. And we were able to answer each other's questions and get into a dialogue with each other. And that's what made it so special. It became a dialogue, you know, a discussion. And I can say that at least for me, I want more of that. I want more of that. It's like a little bit of a teaser, like a taster of a preview of what's going to happen when we're all able to come together here in Judea and spend not an hour together, but a few days together, a few weeks together, months together, years together. Who knows what God has in store, um, really. So, um, but one of the things from that dialogue that I wanted to share with you that really stuck with me, and I, I want to share it with you because of the way it all came out. I don't know, it just sort of tickled me in the right way it was the part where we're discussing, I don't, I don't even remember, something about um, what it means to make Hashem jealous, how God could be jealous. And I threw out there an analogy that I'm, I think that I made up, not there on the spot, but I think I made it up. I think it's a rare, you know, Ari original. Um, and it was an analogy about a father that takes his young son to the amusement park and just wanting to connect and build a relationship. Why does any parent want to bring their kid to the amusement park? And he went to Teddy Bear for the son. And from that moment on, everything that the father does for the son, every ride he takes him on, every prize he wins for the son, well, all, all the little boy does is he thanks the teddy bear. He hugs the teddy bear, kisses the teddy bear, he's talking to the teddy bear, totally ignoring his dad. And this starts making his father angry and jealous. All he wants is a relationship with his son, a connection with his little boy. And instead of giving him the love that he deserves, the son is giving all of that love and attention to the teddy bear. So, you know, I feel like I'm a little bit more bold since the start of this fellowship. I don't know that I would have been so bold to create analogies and Hasidic tales about teddy bears and amusement parks to try to convey deeper truths about the nature of God. But whatever, I'm just doing my best here. And it made sense to me. And so, um, so is the, you know, the, the, the question is, the father really jealous of the teddy bear? No, it's the relationship that he isn't getting with his son. And that instead, the silly stuffed animals getting, that's what's breaking his heart. And then Oak, you hear Oak, where's Oak? He chimed in. And he said something like, that sounds like a thing now. It's a phrase like, put the bear, put down the teddy bear, put down the teddy bear. And, uh, and those words sort of echoed in my head. And there were a number of times this week, you know, codified by Oak, where I was distracted by silliness. And said, are, you know, Hashem wants a relationship with me right now. Do I really need to be playing with this teddy bear, whatever the teddy bear is at the moment, whether it's my, my cell phone or whatever it is? Um, and uh, so there we were, like learning together and growing together and playing off each other. To me, that's what the fellowship is really about. And so we have a lot to talk about on this fellowship. There's just so much. You know, the, this Torah portion, Ba'et Hanan, it starts off with Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. It's one of the most heartbreaking moments in the Torah. You know, he's just standing right over there. Literally, I can see them with my eyes right now out the window. 
in the mountains of Moab, and he's begging Hashem, literally throwing himself at Hashem's mercy. There's 10 different words used for prayer, and each one has a different connotation and meaning to it. Um, and this is like begging Hashem, throwing himself at Hashem's mercy. You'd think that he would say, I'm, I'm Moses. You know, look at all I've done my whole life. If anyone deserves it, it's me. But no, he was not saying that. He was literally saying through his prayer, I don't deserve this at all. I don't deserve it. I'm just begging you, please, 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 Hashem, let me enter the land of Israel. And for reasons that we can speculate about, but ultimately, ultimately, we don't understand. The answer was no. The answer was no. One of the answers I like to give here at the farm is that, you know, people say, you know, uh, are you American? And uh, when they just arrive at the farm and they hear my, my English, I guess, and I say, I, I'm definitely not American. I was born in America, but only because of the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people around the world. And Jews are like, okay. No, but the truth is, uh, Christians are intrigued by that often. But, um, but the truth is that uh, one of the uh, commentaries that's given is that Moses was not able to enter the land of Israel because when the daughters of Jethro introduced him to their father, Jethro, Yitro, as uh, an Egyptian, they said he's an Egyptian, he didn't correct them. He didn't say, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. He didn't say that. And he should have said that. And he got his identity. So, okay, so you think that's your identity? You're not going to be able to enter the land of Israel. Take it or leave it. These all commentaries of different things they're trying to teach. You don't need to, I think by now we understand that you don't need to, 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 to believe necessarily every element of that to still learn from the message that the sages are trying to share. But anyways, he wasn't allowed to enter the land. And, uh, and anyway, the portion goes on to be, become one of the most comprehensive Torah portions in the entire Torah. It, it, in my opinion, okay, there's not like an official rabbinical stance on that, but that's how I feel. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if someone came to me and said, said, all right, give me one portion that I should study that will teach me the main messages of the Torah. I really think that I would pick this portion. This is the one. In my very humble and quite possibly flawed perspective, by the way, this portion, it's just like the greatest hits of all time, if such a thing were possible. The reason I'm saying this is because, you know, very often when I try to do a, you know, a fellowship chronologically from the very first verse in the portion, and I just try to go in, in a linear fashion, I end up not making it far past the very first verse in the whole portion, because there's just so much to explore just on that one word. Look, we're already a quarter through the fellowship, and I haven't even started it yet. What is wrong with me? Please forgive me. Anyways. Um, so I didn't want that to happen in this fellowship. I can't, I couldn't afford to take that risk. So I just did it in a little, little bit of a different way. Uh, I sort of skipped ahead to a few of the main issues. But before I even try to tackle and dive in, allow me to introduce Jeremy. Now, Jeremy isn't actually near the internet right now. Um, his father, thank God, has lived uh, until in a healthy way. A remarkable, remarkable man. You should meet Amnon Gimpel. He's a remarkable, great man, truly. And he's 80 years old, and Jeremy was, went with his family to celebrate his father's birthday. And I think there was a misunderstanding about the schedule. So here I am. So he wasn't able to be here or by, near the internet, but he did just send this message. So here is, uh, here is Jeremy's message to us for this fellowship. Shalom, fellowship. I hope everything's going well with all of you. I'm sorry I'm not able to make it live today. But as the fellowship is live, I am celebrating with all of my family in the land of Israel my father's 80th birthday. And so that's a big deal. 
And um, in honor of my father, I want to give over the Torah of this week. Um, you know, this week it starts off with this one word, Va'etchanan, and Moses prayed. But in Hebrew, Va'etchanan means, and I prayed, specifically with the Aleph in the beginning. And maybe right there is the key. Tehillah taught me this over Shabbat. Um, you know, it's like the one time where Moses isn't given what he asks. So many times he prays on behalf of Israel and God hears him, the greatest prophet of, of the time. And here he asks just to go into the land of Israel. And he's told no. The Midrash really goes into it. The Midrash says that Moses says, you know what? Turn me into an animal. I, I'll give up life as a human. I just want to walk in the land. Make me into some sort of, you know, make me a, make me a cow. <laughs> make me a goat. I just want to walk in the land of Israel. God says, no, make me a bird. I just want to fly. I just want to fly over the Holy Land. God says, no. Just make me a fish. I'll just swim right up to the banks of the Holy Land and be right on the sands of the shore. And then God says, no. And it's like, why is God saying no here? What is all this about? And I think that the answer lies in the word va'etchanan, and I prayed. Because why was he left alone? I mean, why weren't all of the Jewish people praying for Moses to enter into the land of Israel? I mean, I think I heard right, Ephraim Goldberg say it's almost like, you know, I have like a tell him WhatsApp group. And he's like, all right, we got to pray together. Come on, guys, come on, join the WhatsApp group. And he's alone in the WhatsApp Tehillim group. And he's there praying for himself, and the Jewish people don't pray with him. And the Midrash says that had the Jewish people all come together, and had they prayed together with Moshe, God would have said yes. But the fact that Moshe was left alone in his own prayers says he's just not meant to be. He's not meant to be the leader that brings them into the land of Israel. And so what a beautiful thing that our fellowship is, that all of us start the fellowship with a prayer together. We all come from around the world, from different backgrounds and different cultures, and just praying for the welfare of Israel, praying for the, for the welfare of the Jewish people, praying for the forces of good to overcome the forces of evil, and kochenu ba'achdutenu, that our strength is in our unity. And, you know, this week's portion, we talk about the Shema, and, you know, it's so powerful every morning and every night. We say you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And we've talked a lot about that, but me'od, the last word, doesn't mean might. Me'od means very. It means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all of your very. It's really to love God with everything you have. And um, I don't think that's telling us how to love God. It's not telling us, well, if you love, well, love like this, and love like that, and love with your heart, and love also with your mind. I think it's actually defining for us what love is. To love something really is to love it with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. That's what love is. And Moses is saying, I love the land of Israel so much, I'll give it all. I'll be an animal. I'll be a bird. I'll be a fish. Whatever I need, I just love the land. And so what do we learn from these two things juxtaposed to each other? It's saying that, you know, so many of us, we have things that we love, but we sort of hold ourselves back. And we don't prioritize those things properly in our own lives. And it's like we have been given such a gift to the things that we love. The things that we love exist in our lives. Don't ever take them for granted. Love them with everything that we have. If it's, um, you know, your father's 80th birthday, if it's your anniversary that's coming up, if it's your child's birthday, 
there's just so much good if we just open our eyes to see it. And it's to love what we love and to not hold back. And so this fellowship, we should all be blessed to love with all our heart, with all our soul and all our might, and to know that in this generation, what Moses couldn't accomplish with all of his prayers, we have the opportunity of being in the land of Israel, of visiting the land of Israel, of moving to the land of Israel, just get on the next plane. It's available to us now. And so we should really love it with all our hearts, with all our soul and all our might. All right, my friends, I will see you again next week. Shalom. Very nice. That's true. You know, it's uh, sometimes I, I struggle with that, that question. I don't know if you have this also, but there's certain fundamentals of of Torah and understanding God that sometimes it all clicks into place and I see it clearly and it's so basic. And then other times I read the same thing and like, you shall love the Lord your God. I was like, how can I be told to love? Well, how can I be dictated in emotion? I, didn't I do a fellowship about this? And now it's all blank and gone and what? And help me understand and what? And uh, it's, it's something that we have to constantly, constantly revisit. It's like, you know, it's almost like we're in, in, in a dark forest in the middle of a crazy storm a rainstorm and we're trying to get to some house on a mountaintop somewhere you don't see anything and then there's a, a lightning lightning strikes and you see for a moment that house and then it's gone so it's like what is it where is it that's sort of our journey through this world you know and i think that uh, i think we come to this fellowship among other things that we do in hopes that we'll we'll have those moments of lightning striking striking here for that clarity that we can take with us okay but anyways to our portion you know i was talking about that first verse phenomenon, you know, where you get stuck on the first verse. Um, but uh, this, this portion was so uh, critical to me that that doesn't happen because the, the most central ideas to, to take a deep dive into this portion, to swim through these waters, you see that there's really at the heart of it, there are six words that if you look at those six words, you unpack everything else, not only in the portion, but in the entire Torah. So who can guess, fellowship? I'm looking at the chats here. What are these six all-encompassing, fundamental, foundational words, which I want to start with for this fellowship? I'm looking at the chats. I don't even see anyone writing. What are this? Ah, there we go. Tom, you got it. Kathy, Laura. Yeah, we got it. That's right. That's right. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's right. That, those are the six words that I want to try to unpack here. I know it's very ambitious, and it's been such a crazy thing that I know I'm not going to do justice to it. But even doing slight, minimal justice to it is already a good thing. I guess I'm just trying to comfort myself. But I'll tell you, I'll, I'll speak for myself when I say that my whole life is revolving around this verse. Not just me, but many, many, many people for many generations, for thousands of years. But I'll just talk about me. When I wake up in the morning, I wake up at some ungodly hour that starts most of the time with a five, sometimes a four, and I wash my hands, I get dressed, and I run to morning prayers. The heart of which in those morning prayers is the Shema, right? The Shema through the Amidah, through the uh, um, uh, Shemona Esrei meditation, but really the Shema is the heart of it. And uh, when we get to the Shema, what do we do? You know what we do, right? We cover our eyes. Some people actually, it's like a Kabbalistic idea. They take their thumb and their pinky and they put it right here in the 
groove of their eyes, they close their eyes and they put the three fingers right here, which makes a shin, a shin for Shema. I just do like this because that's the way I've always done it. And I close my eyes. And, um, but all of these things, it doesn't create mystical things. It's like when you do this and you have the Shema, it helps to focus your intent and your thoughts and your, you know, your mind and your heart. It's not like it does some sort of, you know, mystical thing. But anyways, let me get back on track here. And, uh, and so we cover our eyes. And, we, and why do we do that? Why do we cover our eyes? I'm looking here. I'm not going to, uh, we, we don't want to get lost in the very compelling and convincing illusions of this world, of the mask that Hashem so brilliantly put on this world that gives off the impression of multiplicity and duality in the world, that there's more than one power in the world, that there's many different powers and many different things. So we cover our eyes. So those that moment when we say the Shema, when we say those words, we ourselves don't get lost in that. And we, we, our ears are hearing the words our mouths are saying. Hear, O Israel, we're hearing the words our mouths are saying. I actually just thought of that. I don't know if there's something to that, but it makes sense to me. We're hearing it from ourselves. We're reminding ourselves. When we recite, you know, the part, the, the, the part in the first two paragraphs about the tefillin that we should have as a sign on our arms, right? In a, or a sign between our eyes and arms. We kiss the tefillin on the arms and then we kiss the tefillin that is positioned on our forehead above and between the eyes. Uh, the, the part of Shema that talks about that, you know, then we gather the tzitzit from the four corners of our garments, of our tzitzit, and we kiss them and we say the word tzitzit. So we're constantly interacting with these commandments of the tefillin and the tzitzit that are encompassing us, that we're wearing, we're totally immersed in it. You know, there are many people actually who wear the tefillin, the phylacteries all day long, you know, but you have to be really functioning at a pretty high level of not getting distracted by the mundane nonsense of this world to pull that off. I'm definitely not there, but living here in Judea, I'm grateful to, to say that I have friends who are there, right? So first thing in the morning, I recite the Shema and I try to live my day in consonance with that truth of God's dominion and orchestration of the world that the Shema represents and I try to live this life of faith and trust and happiness that's a reflection of the knowledge of God's unity and his oneness. And then after a long, sweaty day, I return home. And right after dinner, I run off to evening prayers, where again, the heart of the entire prayer is the recitation of the Shema. And even when I return, uh, return home from the evening prayer, uh, the Shema is still on my lips. Right, as I often go straight into Dvash's room, straight to enter a room to put her to bed, which is one of my favorite highlights of the whole day. And again, the first thing I do when I walk into a room, give her a hug and a kiss, and we uh, then we sing Hamalach Hagol, the the words of Jacob that says the 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 angel that redeemed me shall guard the lads. It's a beautiful song that we sing. And then the heart of our entire thing is that we recite the Shema together. I recite the Shema with Dvash before she falls asleep. I recite the Shema with her just as my parents did with me when they put me to sleep and just as their parents did when they put them to sleep and their parents, them all the way back quite possibly to Mount Sinai itself. And I mean that. And by the way, this is not like, it's, it's not like a partisan sectoral 
demographic thing that certain Jews do this and certain Jews don't. If there's anything that brings all of the nation of Israel together, every single Jew, doesn't matter if it's Ashkenaz or Sephard or Eduda Mizrach or whatever, everybody, it's the Shema. It's the Shema. That has kept us alive for thousands of years. That central mantra for the entire nation of Israel. Some of you actually may have heard the, uh, this beautiful story, possibly you think from me, about the famous Rabbi Yitzhak Halevi Herzog, who in 1946 left Israel just after the Holocaust and went to Europe. And he was uh, visiting these various uh, monasteries, you know, the few righteous monasteries who agreed to take in Jewish children whose parents sent them there to these monasteries and hoped that they would survive. And so Rabbi Herzog turned to the reverend mother of one of these largest monasteries. Um, and uh, when, he, when he arrived there, he thanked her and he blessed her and the monastery for endangering themselves in, in hiding these Jewish children. And he requested that the monasteries turn over the children to him so he can bring them back to the land of Israel to be raised by their people, by their nation, by their family, not by their actual literal families. In almost every case, their families were, were, had been murdered but to go back to their people. And the story goes that the Reverend Mother said that she was more than willing to turn the children over to the rabbi, but she said that they, uh, you know, they couldn't keep records. And uh, by this point, they already didn't know who was who, and there was no way that they could definitively tell uh, who were the Jewish kids and who were not the Jewish kids, particularly being that most of the children themselves didn't know because they were little toddlers, babies, infants at the time that they were sent there. You guys remember this story? So Rabbi Herzog assured the Reverend Mother that he would know, that he'd be able to tell, and that the children were then gathered into a large hall. And when they were all congregated in one place, the rabbi cried out in a loud voice, said, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. He bellowed out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And immediately, Dozens of children, from the hundreds of children there, thousands of children, dozens of children rushed up to the rabbi shouting, Mama, Papa, Mommy, Tati, Tati. Calling for their parents with tears, filling their eyes and rolling down their cheeks. Many of them were sobbing uncontrollably. They probably didn't, you know, remember much in their heads and their brains, but those memories of their parents singing the Shema to them before they went to sleep, well, that's not a memory in the head. That's a memory in the heart. That's a memory burned into the soul of the, of the nation of Israel. So why? Why was the Shema chosen as this, you know, this mantra, this ultimate legacy? Why was the Shema, you know, chosen as the central truth? There's a lot of other possibilities there. Why was that the one that was chosen to pass down to your children and your children's children? Why that? So there are many reasons. And uh, I didn't even ask Tabitha if we could do a fellowship connection. So Tabitha, if you can't, it's okay. But if, if we can, I would love to hear thoughts that you may have about why this is the case, your thoughts about Shema. I would, lo I would love to do that. You know, but, um, but before we get into some of, the, some of the reasons that I just want to throw out, quick background. Okay, quick background for those that don't know. There are three paragraphs in the Shema prayer. We start off by saying the Shema, that, that sentence, chapter 6, uh, verse four, right, of, of the book of, of Deuteronomy. And then um, it goes right into this, the, uh, the first paragraph. And then the second paragraph is chapter 11, Deuteronomy. And then the third is from the 15th chapter of the book of Bamidbar, which is numbers. Am I correct? 
I think it's numbers. Anyways, I always get confused the English translation of the Hebrew books. Okay, so the first two of these three paragraphs that compose the Shema each clearly express the fundamental directive of teaching the Torah, but more literally actually teaching the Shema itself to your children, right? So let's look inside. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse, uh, verse seven. And you shall teach and you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and by the way i really tried to do this every single one of those i tried to when i'm with dvash to talk about the shema to talk about hashem to talk about the torah to my children and interestingly enough someone by the name of a Ellie Pink, I don't know who he was, but I read something he wrote. He pointed out an, an important distinction between those two paragraphs, the first two paragraphs. The, uh, the, the first paragraph, so that it first states there to teach your children, that whole bit about teaching your children, and only then does it say to bind them upon your arms as tefillin, as tefillin, as phylacteries. And the second paragraph reverses the order, curiously, interestingly. It reverses the order, and it first says to bind them as tefillin, and only afterwards it says to teach them to your children. And he says that the reason is because the first paragraph, where it, you know, first, it first says teach your children, is conveying that this commandment of teaching the Shema to your children is effective the moment they are born, the moment they take their first breath, which of course is the reason why the very first words that I whispered into both Dvash's ears and Sheila's ears when they were born, the moment they were put into my arms, the first breath that came out of my mouth into their ears was Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The minute they entered the world, it's incumbent upon us to continue in this multi-generational mission of implanting this beautiful truth into their hearts. The moment they're born, long before they become thinking adults and start putting on tefillin, and you know, at least for Shiloh Bezrat Hashem, they, they, way before the intellectual process of knowing anything, they're already learning the Shema and it's entering their hearts. The sages actually teach us that the commandment to offer our first fruits to Hashem, right, the laws of Bikurim, is also like an, an illusion, an allegory that we most, must devote our first fruits, right, our children. Our children's lives, even their first years, their first moments to Hashem, and ensuring that they know the beauty of the Torah and the, the holy truth of, of the Shema. That's, that's the first moment. That's the first moment until their last moment. The last words I said when my father left this world is I put my hand over his eyes and I whispered the Shema into his ear as I pray that Sheila will do to me when I leave the world. First words we, we encounter and the last words we say and the last words that we hear. But okay, so there's back to the point that we were learning. So we're taught that the second paragraph where tefillin is mentioned first before the directive to educate your children is so we know that even after they mature into adults and start wearing tefillin, even then when they're grown-ups, no, no, we can't say, okay, our job is over. No, we are no less obligated to continue their Torah education. So the man brought a, a teaching from one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, Rav Shalom Dov Bear of Lubavitch, and he said 
This was, and when when a Lubavitcher Rebbe says a thing, that's like it's like it's like a law, you know, at least to the Lubavitchers, but really to the nation, he says, just as is it, is it incumbent upon every Jew to put on tefillin every day, so too it is an unequivocal duty on every individual, from the greatest scholar to the most simple of folk, to set aside a half hour each day in which to think about the education of their children. Every day to think about the education of your children. That is how critical and central and fundamental that that is. I'll never forget, you know, we were having a goodbye session with one of these groups of these uh, German volunteers that came out to the farm and everyone was sharing something new that they learned that they didn't know before. And one woman said something I'll never forget. She said, you know, I've never seen anyone love their children the way all of you love your children. You know, it was so unexpected. It just had such an impact on me. I will, I'll, I'll never forget that. And I was sort of without words for a moment. And now listen, I am sure that this woman loved her children with all of her heart. You could tell she was a God-fearing, Bible-believing woman. She was definitely a terrific mother. I'm sure that's true, but I think she was sensing that there's just something else, something perhaps intangible in the nation of Israel, an added thing that is just built into the genetic makeup of the DNA of the lineage of Israel in which we're taught by Hashem that our most important legacy in this world is the love and the effort that we put into our children. And by the way, I want to open up a parenthesis here. I can do this. I know I'm ADD, but the spirit is moving me. I want to share this with you. I want to say these words because one of the most frequent themes of your messages to me, when you're seeking advice or to share your hearts, is that you're often, um, I find that many of you, many of you are often pained, uh, often distraught about how you feel your children are going off the path that you have educated for them, that you would want for them. If it's not too, you know, personal, raise a hand if this speaks to you at all, right? There's a lot of us. There's a lot. And it's not just you. There's in the, in the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel, around the world. This is something that is, uh, is very common. So here I want to say that you can never say that they're off the path because you don't know their path. You don't know. You remember the story of the righteous king Hezekiah who didn't want to have children because he knew through prophecy that his son would be this evil king, Manasseh. The evil, 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 one of the most evil kings of the, in the world in the history of the nation of Israel was going to be the son of this righteous king, Hezekiah. His name was Manasseh. And so you, you don't want to have children. But to cut the story short, we could just open up this whole portion and get into that. But it, it, wasn't, it, it was a sin that he did not want to have children because it's not up to his understanding. It wasn't his place. Because follow the Davidic dynasty down, dynasty down, further and further down to Manasseh's son. Okay, Manasseh was bad guy, bad guy, true. But what about his son and his son all the way down to the Messiah that we've been praying for? No prayers for your children are unheard. No effort, no effort is ever in vain. It is not our place to be disappointed. It's only our place to love our children with all of our hearts, to pray for them and to model for them what it looks like to love Hashem and the happiness and the goodness that brings to our lives, to love them unconditionally, despite them knowing that how you believe and that they know that they're maybe disappointing you. And you just shower them with so much love and so much pride, no matter who they are. And they can feel that unconditional love that Hashem has for all of us. And that's really what we're here to do. 
and it can't be fake. It has to be real, real. It's real. And there is, this is a tough generation, just the very survival of, of our children and with all that they're facing this onslaught, we should be overwhelmingly proud of them. And so anyway, so I think this German woman picked up on this sort of overarching priority, the emotional investment and the central purpose that our children have in our lives, I think, I think. Anyways, so I wanna let you in on a little struggle that's happening in my family right now. You know, actually over the past few months since my father passed away, we've been going through this. It's not a bad struggle, it's, it's a thing. I think a, probably a lot of families go through with it, uh, go through it, and so my mother, my sisters and I, we've spent a number of months deliberating about what to write on my father's matseva, on his tombstone. Um, it's a decision that people have to make, you know, for their, for their family, for their, for their close ones. And we've gone through many ideas and we're just waiting until we're all happy. Thank God we're not fighting about it. We're just trying to figure it out together. But, um, and, and we figured like until we're all at peace and we're all happy, it's not the right thing. And so we'll know when it's the right thing. We'll know when we, we'll know it's from Hashem when we all say, ah, it's right. And so uh, we all agreed immediately that it would definitely have the words Chovev Sion Yerushalayim, a lover of Zion and Jerusalem. Those are the words on his father's tombstone and his grandfather's tombstone as well. You can actually see I found a picture of my great grandfather's tombstone. You see that right here, Tabitha? Could you put that up? See, it's, it's a pretty impressive tombstone there. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it says there, Chovev Tzion V'Yerushalayim, lover of Zion and Jerusalem. And I have zero doubt that it goes much further back than that. Um, but um, so that, that's making the cut. It's just been on so many generations and it describes like our family and the, 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 the mission and the message that has been successfully and centrally transmitted that we all feel like that is an accurate description and summation of our entire essence. What a blessing, right? But it feels like it's a big decision. You know, it feels like a literally a monumental decision and it feels very final and a lot of emotion goes into it. Just, just making this consequential decision. And so, so here's my thing, you know, being that my father's name was Mordechai, I wanted to put the verse Mordechai did not bend the knee or bow. It's a book from a book, a verse from the book of Esther, which is clearly, you know, a, a reference to when everybody was bowing down to Haman and Mordechai refused to bow down. And, uh, and I, I liked that verse because I felt like it summarized my father's holy obstinance and his willingness to pay any price rather than to bend the knee to what everybody else seemed to, to be bowing down to, whatever the thing was. And my sisters liked it, and my mother liked it, but they didn't love it. You know, they didn't really want it on there. It just didn't speak to them in that deep way that it needed to. So something wasn't right there, and it was only last week, maybe two weeks ago, that it hit me. And, uh, you know, true, true, it, the whole Mordecai thing was an element of my father's character, without a doubt. But I just knew that the verse that hit me last week, I just knew they would love it. And it's from chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, of Breshit, 
when Hashem is describing his special love for Abraham. So I just pulled out the words, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. That was my father's essence, his children, teaching us and inspiring us and modeling for us how to walk in Hashem's ways, how to love Israel, how to love the Jewish people, how to love Zion and Yerushalayim. That was literally all that mattered to him, all that mattered to him. You know, there was a time a few years there where he, he was actually doing pretty well, and he told me that the office manager said, Michael, according to what you're making, you should be driving a Lexus and a this or, or a BMW. And he just bought a pickup truck. And he said with that rest of that money, he gave that to the Jewish day school, not for our um, tuition, but for the tuition of other kids that didn't have the ability to pay tuition. He would rather drive around a pickup truck, by the way, which he really loved more than he would have loved any of that nonsense, because no Jews had pickup trucks for some reason, and they all needed to borrow them. And he used to make them say, you're right, pickup truck is cool. And so he loved it. It's great shtick. I totally understand him where he's coming from. But the point is that he was paying all these other tuitions. He would do anything, go without anything to make sure that, that we received that Jewish education that he never got. And I was right. The minute I shared that with my uh, siblings and my mother, it was unanimous. For some reason, there's a little something holding it up. I'm not sure exactly what, but everybody liked that verse and felt like it captured the essence of my father. And that's why God said that he loved Abraham in a special way. What was it that Abraham did? That's what Abraham was all about. And our last name, thank God, is Abramowitz, son of Abraham. Anyways, I don't know. I'm getting lost on this on the personal thing. But uh, let's take a step back to the beginning. Right? Let's go back to that central six words. Six words that change everything. Right? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first word is Shema. Right? Listen. It's usually translated as hear, right? Hear, O Israel. But I actually think that, I think that listen would be a better word. Because, you know, you can hear something. Shana says, like, are you listening to me? And I could just sort of parrot back to her the last eight words or six words of what she said. She's like, just because you can recall the last words doesn't mean you're actually listening to me, right? You can hear something and not internalize it and not take it to heart and not even understand it at all. But when you listen, it enters, it makes an impression, right? In the past, we've talked about the fact that the words of God on Mount Sinai had no echo. They didn't bounce off anything. They were absorbed and integrated into all of reality and into the hearts of everyone that was there. They didn't bounce off anything. Because in the Torah, hearing is really of, of paramount importance. Actually, this is, interestingly enough, Jewish law, Torah law, teaches that one who is responsible for making someone else blind is obligated to financially compensate the person who they've wounded, whom they made blind for the value of their eye or their eyes. But someone who uh, made someone else deaf, they need to compensate that person for the complete value of their entire life. After all, you, you know, I, I, I suppose, I guess the reason is that your eyes can deceive you, right? But what you hear has really a more profound sense of, of truth to it. You know, the uh, interesting thing the Torah tells us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, that when the nation was at Mount Sinai, by Yeruitakolot, Right? They saw the sounds. 
they saw the sounds, that which they would normally only hear, they were able to experience with their sense of vision as well. They saw the sounds. So the Shema is priming us to hear, priming us to listen. Very much in the same way that Jacob, right, uh, Yisrael, his children gathered around him on his deathbed, and they were telling their father to listen to them. They said, hear, O Israel, listen to us, father. As they spoke to his heart, and they reassured him that, what did they say to him? Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. That was the Israel we're talking about. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. They were assuring him, reassuring him that Hashem was their God, and they understood the secret. They understood the secret. The secret that has been entrusted with the nation of Israel and empowered with the nation of Israel for all these years. Now, as you all know, you know, to really unpack and, and magnify this verse of Shema and what it's essentially saying, it would take an entire fellowship. I know that because I'm pretty sure we've done it before. I believe we've done a whole fellowship just on the Shema before. But in its essence, the verse is conveying the truth that Hashem, you know, the name yud Hey vav Hey, the tetragrammaton, you know what I'm talking about, the ultimate name of Hashem? That name is the most transcendent encapsulation of Hashem's foundational attribute of compassion. That's the source name, the root name. That we, that we know that the most transcendent, compassionate God, we know that, that's what we're saying in the Shema, is Eloheinu, is also the imminent God, is the same God that manifests behind every other energy and every other power in the world. All of the plagues of Egypt that they made, the laws of the forces of nature that they, the Egyptians made into gods that they worshipped, we understood that all of those are just different manifestations of the unity of Hashem, and He's in charge and controlling all of them. They don't have their own independent power and force. It's, it sounds ridiculous to us, right? But back in the day, People believe that. And really, I think today, a lot of people essentially believe that too. And so, so that's what the message of the Shema is, that Eloheinu, all of these different forces, we know the secret that Hashem is behind all of them, animating all of them, as different and as disparate as they may seem. Meaning that Hashem, the transcendent God, is the only God. He's the God behind every imminent force that we experience in the world. That's essentially... The same message that has been echoed throughout all of Jewish history. The, the example that came to mind for some reason, the, most notably, is with Elijah the prophet. Who else thought of Elijah? Right? When he told the nation of Israel, are you fools? Because the nation of Israel at the time, remember, they were praying to Baal and they were also praying to the God of Israel. How long can you stand on both sides of the fence? If you believe in Hashem, really, then definitionally, you cannot believe in any other God. Definitionally, you cannot believe in Hashem and Baal. You can't believe in Hashem and Nechushtan. You can't believe in Hashem and Asherah or the sun god or anything else. The moment you believe in Hashem, as Elijah said, there's nothing else. Hashem hu ha-Elohim. God, Hashem, yud is the imminent forces and powers that are all around us in this world. From man to the forces of nature to everything that seems like it has power, that is Hashem. Hashem is behind all of it. Hashem is the power behind every imminent energy and imminent power in the world. Okay. If I'm saying it again and again, it's because we say it again and again. It's important to drill this in. So back to the Shema. Right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hero Israel, Israel, right? It's not some abstract, disconnected 
universal thing, no matter how much leftist liberal Jews and reform synagogues in America want to universalize everything, this understanding of Hashem in the world is entrusted to Israel and entrusted to the Jewish people. That we, we, it's, it's, a, it's a fire, it's a torch that we are supposed to give to all the nations of the world. That's a knowledge and understanding we're supposed to implant in the hearts of everyone, but it's given to us for safekeeping to share that message. And so it's personal. You know, we have this personal, special relationship with Hashem. He runs the whole world, but we have a special thing going on with him. Right? Here, O Israel, the Lord Eloheinu, Hashem Eloheinu, uh, Eloheinu means our God. Not Hashem who, uh, just Elohim, Hashem Eloheinu. So we are a people. We're a nation. We're a family. This is personal. And we're connected to each other by being Hashem's firstborn people. He is ours and we are his. And he's with us all of the time. He's ours and we are his in, in our happiness and even more so in our grief and in our pain. So Shema Yitzhak Hashem Eloheinu, Hashem Echad is one, is one. Just as Hashem is one, not that there is one God, but Hashem is one. Who knows the difference between those two statements? There being one God as opposed to two, three, four, zero. We're saying Hashem is one. He is oneness. And just as Hashem is one, we, his people, are also one. And our love for each other and our unity is a testimony to that truth. And that's why it's such a desecration of God's name when the world sees division among the nation of Israel. For how are we supposed to bring unity to the nations of the world when we ourselves do not have unity amongst ourselves? That's part of the great tragedy that we're all mourning on the 9th of Av is the hatred that brought about the destruction of the temple. Because the temple was a mockery as long as the nation of Israel, here we are offering sacrifices of the nations of the world saying there's one God and we're hating each other. It's a mockery. It's a hypocrisy. Okay, so we're running out of time. So let's, let's go on into the first paragraph of the Shema. Uh, let's, let's just go through the, the, the whole first paragraph there. Let's read it as a whole, and then we'll go back to the beginning, which will probably take us to the end of the fellowship. Okay. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words, which I command you this day, shall be in your hearts. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them upon the posts of your house and on your gates. There you see it, right? Number, what's the first message? Love Hashem. Two, teach your children. Three, tefillin. Wear it on your body, right? On your arm, on your, uh, on your mind. Like, integrate it into your knowledge, and then bring it into your heart and into your actions. So tefillin, wear it on your, on your body, on your heart, and in your mind. Mezuzah, wear it on your homes, in your heart, in your children's heart, on your body, in your homes, everywhere. Totally encompassed and immersed in this truth always as we go through this difficult, challenging, confusing world. That's the first paragraph. All right now let's go to the beginning. What does it mean to love Hashem? So Jeremy shared uh, some thoughts which truly are beautiful, right? Everything you have, that, that's what it is to love to everything. I don't know. I think that there's degrees of love. It's not just all or nothing. 
but there's definitely something to what he's saying. You know, we've done entire fellowships about what it means to love Hashem, and I actually want to go back and relearn those. But, um, like, the question, how can we be commanded to have an emotion? That is a fair question to have. Love God. How can you tell me to feel a thing? But I'll just tell you the simplest way I understand that when that question comes up for me is that the word love is ahava, which as we've talked about before, the root word of ahava comes from havva, which means to give. And so when you love someone, you give to them. And so by loving Hashem with every bit of our essence, we are not only willing, but we do. We give Hashem everything that we have and everything that we are. Right, so let's go to the first words again. We shall love Hashem with all of our hearts. Now, here's the case where you really need to know the Hebrew for the next part of this. Because if it was just about loving Hashem with all of our hearts, it would say, for those Hebrew people, you could uh, confirm what I'm saying here. It would say, libecha, With all of your, your heart. But it doesn't say libecha, singular. It says levavecha with all of your hearts, meaning it's plural. It's plural. Why would it be plural when we have numerous hearts? So this, the Hasidic sages, not only them, even Rashi himself, you know, they teach uh, the truth that I think is actually sort of clear and obvious upon independent reflection of just the nature of life and humanity, right? So they note that the human being is a merging, is a synthesis of the transcendent, lofty holiness of the soul, which is a spark of Hashem himself, and a much, much lower manifestation of that light in the form of the animal body. We have a lot of things in common with an animal. You know, the, 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 the lusts, the cravings, the desires, we have an animal body too. So it's like we have two hearts, an animal heart and a spiritual godly heart. And each one of these energies has a, it's got its own heart. So, and that's why Rashi says, what does it mean, levavecha? That we are to love Hashem with both of our inclinations. Right? We're not like, you know, monks that are just banishing or like a priest that just banishes the whole physical side of things and the, the, just act like it doesn't happen. Ignore it. Push it out. That doesn't work. It creates perversions. It creates sicknesses. That's what we're supposed to love Hashem with both of our inclinations the lofty spiritual inclination and the base physical inclination, that both of them. We don't deny the physical animalistic thing. We elevate it. And although it seems like the two hearts are pulling us in opposite directions, it doesn't need to be that way. The truth is they both come from the same source, obviously. They both come from Hashem. They're both from Hashem. And they're both critical for us in order to fulfill the mission that Hashem sent us down into this world, into this physical body, in order to fulfill. We need them both to fulfill that mission. And a critical part of that mission is to channel and to direct and to elevate the animal desires, the animal heart, to sanctify that and elevate it. And so when I was thinking about how to explain this, my mind took me in a little bit of an ADD direction, but we're all family here, so I'm just going to roll with it. It took me to my youth. And uh, you may remember, you know, when I was a kid, I did a lot of crazy things. Maybe it had like holy reasons that I did them in my own mind, but I did a lot of crazy things. 
and nothing criminal, nothing like bad, nothing that hurt anyone, just crazy. And it was a lot. It was a, it, it was a lot. My parents had to endure a lot. I was actually quite well known for my, my antics. People seemed to respect me for it sometimes. I felt like it made me popular. Just, just all the time I was doing it, I, I do something uh, as silly and ridiculous. This is just the example that came to me. It's not a great example. I would go up to a window of a restaurant where there is a table of, let's say, 20 people that were eating inside by the restaurant. And I would just go up to that window and stare, stand up straight flush to the window with my face against the glass, staring, fixated on their table at their food. Never looked away for a second, no eye contact, no smiles. I would just rub my belly and lick my lips like I was starving and just focus on their food for like a long, uncomfortable, I mean, like seven or eight minutes. It's a long time, right? Not cracking a smile, it was like a gift. You know, and my friends would be like, you know, the, the people at the table didn't know what to do with themselves. They would go through all these dirty trying to ignore and then going back to trying to no, just looking at the food. And my friends were cracking up at a distance. And that's just one silly, relatively unentertaining example. It was silly, but, it, you know, I, I was a kid, so I don't like judge myself too harshly for it. But there was some time there that I really thought of going that route. You know, it was really like the Sasha Baron Cohen, the Borat thing. Like, I was really good at making people laugh, and I was good at keeping a straight face. Thought maybe stand up or something else. I didn't know. But I never did it, you know, because whenever I, I did things like that, the older I got, it felt more empty. I felt like there was a lot of laughs and a lot of positive attention, but there was no real light or beauty coming out of it. It was just, it just became at a certain point, crazy for crazy sake. And then Jeremy and I, you know, we started our TV show. We were already on this mission of sharing about Hashem and Israel with the world, feeling like I was like, like an advocate for Hashem in the world. And, and so we had the radio show. And then remember, we had the TV show. And it was the first time that I really felt like those skills that Hashem gave me to do ridiculous things and make people laugh, that I could actually harness what I thought was just solely a base low impulse, and I could harness it for Hashem and for godliness in the form of our television show called Tuesday Night Live in Jerusalem, particularly the segment called Meet the Streets. Now, for some reason, I just found out that none of our old Tuesday Night Lives are online. I don't think I couldn't find them, neither could Tabitha, and we couldn't find the Meet the Streets segment. She just found one that someone else put up. Um, but, uh, but I wanted to share it with you. So it's not the best one, but it was just one to, just to give you a little taste of how I was able to harness those impulses for something that I felt was, was, was light and beauty. So, Tabitha, do you want to play that? And now, Meet the Street with Ari and Jeremy. Eat the barakas of Jerusalem. 200 years of barakas. Barakas that are 200 years old. This is the most beautiful thing in the world. It's fresh, it's only 200 years. Walk on this land, take this land, cultivate this land, produce it, do, do what you're supposed to do. Obey his commandments and be strong. Polish man from Poland. A Polish man? Yeah. Okay. Hasidim. Do you think any Polish men are dressed up like an Ethiopian guy? Uh, I hope so. I hope so too. Right, guys, what is the biggest problem facing the Jewish people today? Just pop them out, pop them out. Intermarriage. Intermarriage. Iran. Iran. Ignorance. Ignorance. What about people who are ignorant about the intermarriage problem we're facing in Iran? Uh, what I'm going to name my firstborn son, 
doo-doo. Okay. Doo-doo. And my daughter's moron and osnot, because they're not going to leave the land of Israel and go to live in America with a name like that, no? There's beauty to okay, that. Okay, so that's not a great example. I'll give you that. Not a great example. That's just what we found. Uh, and keep in mind, the audience there was predominantly uh, Jews in Israel, and so there's, there's certain names in Israel like Osnat and Dudu, which are like normal names here. But if you take them to America, it'd be a pretty embarrassing name to say that your name is Dudu, at least where I'm from. Anyway, so I thought that was funny. And we had a lot of, of laughs and a lot of things. And I really felt like I was able to harness what, what was, like I said, was a base impulse to serve Hashem. We do that with, with our sexual desires. Those could go off the rails into horrible places or it could bring the most holiness and the greatest, sweetest life into the world if we just harness it, not deny it, but channel it. If we allow our higher self to control it and to, 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 to have our soul be a vessel and a vehicle to channel it. Anyways, that's what we're called upon here in this world to do, to elevate, to elevate the physical by sanctifying it for the spiritual realm. And so we love Hashem with all of our hearts, right? with all of our souls. What does that mean to love God with all of your souls? Meaning we need to be prepared to, to die, to sanctify Hashem's name. I always think about the holy Roe Klein, you know, the, 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 he was like a sage, a scholar, a soldier, a hero, one of the greatest heroes in my mind in modern Israeli history. He was in the Lebanon war and he, his a grenade was thrown right amongst his, they were in some sort of little house and right in the middle of his whole unit. And he jumped onto the grenade and saved the lives of so many of them as he declared, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai had the last words on his lips as he left the world, saving his, his uh, fellow soldiers. You know, I just think of the countless Jews in history that have preferred death than to bow down to an idol or to renounce Hashem, each one with the Shema on their lips. So we have to be willing to sacrifice our lives, or sometimes, by the way, even more difficult, our egos. We have to be willing to sacrifice our egos for Hashem. We have to be willing to stand alone and to look like a fool in the eyes of the whole world for our whole lives. That's better than appearing like a fool in the eyes of Hashem for one second. It's easier said than done. We have to be willing to sacrifice our ego. And then which, uh, you know, some people define as all of our money or all of our possessions. Jeremy says something I love with all of our me'ods. The word me'od means all of our varies. With the very best of everything we have, because ultimately, you know, when we sacrifice all that we have and all that we are, the illusion of our separateness is stripped away and we're able to merge and connect with Hashem in a way that is the greatest joy and pleasure in the world, in a way that words can't describe it, it is not something that can be conveyed intellectually. You just have to experience that for a moment, what it is to sacrifice something real and something that means a lot to you for Hashem, you think it would be so painful but it's the greatest joy in the world. So, you know, when you pierce through the outer shell of, of any of the words of Shema, the paragraphs, you see that it's all there to just convey the deepest truth, right? Ein od milvado, which as you know, is one of my top all-time favorites. Everybody that's been here knows, Ari, Ein od milvado. There's nothing other than Hashem, which quite intentionally, by the way, is in this week's Torah portion as well. Chapter four, verse 35. There's nothing other than Hashem. Hashem is the ultimate oneness. I actually thought of an analogy and I wasn't going to put it in, but it kept on jumping into my mind again and again and again. I'm like, okay, so maybe I'm supposed to put it in even though it seems silly and trite. 
are any of you now or ever were you ever Trekkies? You know what a Trekkie is? Star Trek. My father. Okay, who that? Ezra. Ezra was a Trekkie. Ezra is a Trekkie, possibly. Anyways, my father loved Star Trek. We watched Star Trek together all the time. And uh, he would always talk about the holodeck. And the holodeck, you know, they would step into this room, which is just a room. And then when you press the button, this sort of unified energy field would generate whatever environment or entities they wanted. And it seemed so real. It was like a whole world. Uh, but it was really an illusion, you know, and eventually the holodeck shut off and it just, and it was all gone. It was all from the same energy field but it just felt that's what it, it it speaks to me that's it's a little bit of a of a decent analogy to what it is hashem's unified oneness we look around us and it's so compelling but really it's hashem is behind everything everything conveys this unity of hashem all the way down to the number of times we repeat shema in a day right when do we do it in the morning and at night it makes me think of the verse from from the book of psalms um, we, we speak of your chesed, you know, in, in the morning. What is the, what is the chesed? Clear, obvious, revealed, loving kindness. We talk about that in the morning. In the morning when there's light and everything is clear and, and illuminated. But then it says, we testify to our faith in Hashem at night, at night, in the dark, not just literally like the, the chronological night, but the nights of our lives in the dark during the times of confusion and doubt. And for that same reason, we pronounce the truth of Hashem in the Shema, both in the morning and at night. So I'm going to try to bring this together so because I, I see we're, we're over time here. There's something very unique about this way this actually shows up in the in the, in the Torah itself. You know, you won't see this in any Bible that you read. Even the Jewish JPS, you don't see it. You actually have to look in the actual Torah itself in a Torah scroll to see what I'm talking about. I got a picture of it I want to share with you. But it's actually a relatively rare phenomenon. But there are two letters in that verse of Shema that are dramatically larger than the other letters in the Shema. Here's a picture of, of it itself. Tabitha, could you show? I don't know if I told you to bold that. If you have that picture, show. please show that, that picture of the Torah scroll. Even if I go on and I'm talking about it later, it's okay. Still show that picture, Tabitha, if you don't mind. So, but it, it, whether you see it or not, there are two larger letters. And so the first one is the letter Ayin, Ayin which is uh, from the last letter of the word Shema, Ayin. And the second letter is a Dalit from the last letter of the word One. And so when you put those two letters together, they spell Ed, Ed, which means witness. And I think that the message is clear. The Shema itself is a testimony to the secret of God's oneness, to his perfect unity. And we are the nation of the Shema. As Isaiah says in chapter 10, Edai, we are Hashem's witnesses. That's what we are. And just as Hashem is unified, so are we, whether we realize it or not. So when we, the nation of Israel, proclaim Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, we are testi testifying as, uh, to the oneness of Hashem. And just as Hashem is eternal, 
we as his witnesses, we're eternal as well. One God in the world, that one idea of the one God, such a novel idea introduced by the nation of Israel, can only be truly testified to by a unified nation. Not a uniform nation, but unified nation. A unified nation. And that's two very different things. It's very to be easy to be unified when you're uniform, but that's a totalitarian dictatorship that the left wants in America and around the world. That's not true unity. What true unity is that the greater the diversity is within that love and that unity, the more beautiful the unity becomes because the unity is only facilitated, it's only allowed, it's only able to come into being because of the knowledge that we have that behind all of these distinctions and differences between us, Hashem is there. He's all of our Father. And so I want to share with you this video, actually, that was filmed this past Thursday in Rome. Now, as you're watching this, let this sink in, right? There is at the, these Jews are at the Arch of Titus. And on the Arch of Titus is carved the images of the Romans returning with temple vessels and Jews subjugated and in chains. Where are the Babylonians now? Where are the Romans? Where are the Byzantinians? Where are the Assyrians? Where are they? Gone. They're disappeared. Great empires gone. Gone. And this stubborn, stiff-necked nation of believers in the one God of Israel, we are still here, arm in arm on the ninth of Av, singing the Psalms of King David in Rome at the Arch of Titus. If we forget you, O Jerusalem, May my right arm lose its cunning. Listen to this. be touched by that unbelievable unbelievable it's like a redemptive vision if only the the nation of israel those jews being carried off in chains and their roman captors would have been able to watch that video and see who would be there and who would be gone but it's not because of our might or our strength or anything about our cunning or our anything we exist and we survive despite our insanity as a people despite ourselves, not because of ourselves, despite ourselves, because Hashem loves us ultimately and truly. His unconditional love for us is we don't really understand. We can't really understand it fully, but it's there. And by extension, that love will go to all of humanity and all of the entire world. And so that's why I think it was a worthwhile thing for us to focus here in this fellowship just on that verse of the Shema, because that is, it's the deepest secret of the unimaginable oneness and unity of God. It's all in those words. And as the nation of Israel, along with those who love us and attach themselves to us, our mission is to be a living testimony to the living God of Israel, a living testimony to the eternal rock of Israel. 
and the day will soon come when the eyes of all the nation will be cast upon us. And instead of quoting the United Nations Resolution 242 or some ridiculousness, we will stand in front of the entire nations of the world, all of the nations, and we'll pronounce with confidence and with clarity and with faith, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. May that day come very soon. And so now, my friends, it is my great honor to bless all of you with the blessing of Aaron the high priest that he gave to the nation of Israel. And as you know, I am not a priest. I'm not a descendant of Aaron, but I am from the tribes of Israel. I think Judah, but that's just obviously because I just think that. But that's what the Torah tells us. Hashem tells us we're a nation of priests, and it is our greatest privilege to bless the entire world. And uh, blessing all of you is my greatest joy because you are a blessing to me beyond what you could ever know. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisamlecha shalom May God bless and protect you. May he shine his light and his countenance upon you. And may he give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel, live from the Judean frontier.